it all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is John Abbott, president and CEO of GBH, America's leading multi-platform creator for public media and the largest producer of content for PBS and partner to NPR and PRX. A nationally recognized public media leader, John has transformed the way GBH creates and distributes diverse educational content to millions of Americans throughout New England and across the nation. He joined GBH in 1998 and was named president and CEO in 2007. Prior to that, he served as Senior Vice President for Development and Corporate Relations at PBS and in Senior Management Positions with San Francisco Public Station KQED. He began his broadcasting career back in 1981 at Columbia University Station WKCR-FM. John holds a bachelor's degree in political science from Columbia University and an MBA from Stanford. He's a member of the boards of PBS, National Public Media, and an elected member of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences and the recipient of the John Jay Award from Columbia University, and he currently lives in Boston. John Abbott, welcome into the corner office. Well, thanks for having me. It's a real privilege. Oh, it's great to hear your voice again. We spoke a couple of months ago, and we've been super busy as we've got through the year, uh, into the year. And we're now, gosh, mid-February already. I can't even believe it. Almost at the end of February. Uh, I'm not sure exactly when this will be airing, but uh, great to get caught up with you and, you know, want to hear about the story. And you've had a, a, a really uh, incredible one as you've gone through the public broadcasting world. But uh, we like to always start at the beginning and hear a little bit about kind of the early uh, life. And tell us a little bit about where you you grew up and what your early family life was like. Oh, well, I, I grew up in New York City. Uh, wow. I'm a definite um, urban kid. Um, <laughs> in Manhattan? Uh, yeah, in Manhattan, upper, on the Upper West Side, above uh, above the Columbia University campus. Um, awesome, awesome. My, da- my dad was involved for many, many years at Barnard College, the women's college. Oh, sure, there. yeah, right. And so yeah. I would, you know, and dad was so involved there, and that was, it's a, it's a wonderful neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, but I always liked to, well, and then I went on, grew up in the city, went on and actually went to college at Columbia. Uh, so I like to tease. Never really left the neighborhood. Right. So I like to tease <laughs> that I like to tease that I was both a townie and a gownie. So, uh, <laughs> I love it. If I was, uh, trying to find my way around that neighborhood and need to cut through uh, a back alley somewhere, I kind of knew it all by the back of my hand. Was brothers and sisters growing up? Uh, I had, uh, yes, I had, um, 
by a sister. Uh, she um, actually a part of my growing up was uh, a circumstance where she uh, unfortunately we lost her when I was oh. young. Um, I was a 18. She was 16. She mm. had something called Marfan syndrome and we mm. grew, up, grew up together and, um, and it was, a it was a, it was a really good family life and, yeah. uh, sorry to have lost her, yeah. uh, when she was 16, but, but no, we were, uh, we were, we were a wonderful family. Mom worked from the home or, or did she have outside? She, yeah, well, actually my mom was, I, I loved watching Mad Men. The, <laughs> See the advertising I, world. Yeah, exactly. I realized <laughs> that um, my mother was in, she was born in 1924. So she was in oh. this Vanguard. She was a, a firstborn uh, into a family in Vermont that uh, probably won't surprise your listeners. Um, back then, uh, there was a lot that was expected of sons in families, but not sure. much, of, not much of daughters. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that wasn't the way my mom was going to think about mm. life. And she found her way through college and uh, to a master's uh, in food science and um, and to New York City and loved New York City just like mm. my dad did. My dad grew up. Uh, on a as a tenant farmer in Southwest Missouri. So, oh wow! Yeah. was an immigrant as well. Yeah. Yeah. So both both my parents had a kind of rural thing. My mother grew up on a dairy farm, um, and uh, both arrived in New York City. And my mom was uh, when I watched Mad Men, I realized uh, <laughs> I think my mom was Joan. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I modeled after a real yeah, character. No, I mean, I love writing. I mean, I just realized because then uh, later in life, she would show me pictures of these advertising shoots and, and she ran the test kitchen for Women's Day magazine. And she was on television. I never knew some of the things she was on television. That's, class awesome. and, That's so and, cool. And then so Mad Men comes along and I realized and she always had a word for <laughs> kind of what she and this very tight knit group of professional women uh, ac- accomplished and sure. put up with. And, uh, I, you know, in a way I loved watching Mad Men cause at that stage of my mom's life, she was, um, she was in her nineties or late eighties. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, you know, I love, she watch it. Did, did she enjoy the show? I did. I, 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 I took her, th- I, we watched a couple of episodes together and, yeah. uh, yeah. and she looked at me, she goes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's what it was like. <laughs> yeah, she goes, she goes, yeah, it's pretty close. I can tell you, I can tell you some other stories, but <laughs> yeah, they, they, they kind of got they got the top lines right. Maybe, maybe I won't, but it, it, I will say it. Uh, I guess you learn this, uh, you know, as you get a little further on in your own life and raise your own kids and have your own career. You you have a kind of special respect for what your parents uh, navigated to to get right. where they got and to. Right. And make possible for you what what they made possible. So yeah, yeah, fantastic, great. Well, what are some of those uh, kind of early lessons? I mean, I, I'm assuming Dad came to New York because of the job at Barnard, right? Or or did he come earlier than that? Yeah, and I said my dad was born. Um, so I'm I was in my dad's second family. So he's born okay. in 1907. He would have been mm-hmm. uh, this November. He'd been 115 years old. <laughs> uh, so. It was a little bit like being raised by your grandparents, and uh, yeah. I always, uh, to me, I always felt um, that that uh, I came to recognize that as a kind of special gift because yeah, yeah. he'd already, in fact, my I'm very close to my half brothers, and uh, right. he um, they have shared with me how the way when Dad got a second shot at raising a family, mm. time had passed, and his view of what a, being a dad was like was going to be different and man yeah, different. Right, and, uh, right. 
they they always tease me that that I, that I got the better dad. Um, and, uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny I identify with that. I have I have older brothers that are ten and seven years older, same mother, but they look at how he treated me and how he treated them and go, "You're a lucky dude." <laughs> yeah, no, no, so I get a lot of that. But he, um, so but he uh, was the first in his family to go to college, and he went to what was then Springfield State Teachers College. It's now oh, Missouri right. State, Missouri. Yeah, and he yeah. Um, he worked and then put his brother through college. They were the first two in the family to go to college. And then he um, pretty much just nipped in and escaped, pretty much got ahead of the depression and got to Montclair, uh, I think it was Montclair College or Montclair State College and taught accounting and coached sports and things. And then uh, got his master's and his EDD at Teachers College. And, you know, he would, gosh, you know, my great admiration for my dad is uh, he worked like a lot of us feel about our parents, hopefully, um, worked extraordinarily hard to, um, to make, to make a big journey in life to, to to advance from, uh, what was a really hard life for them in Missouri. So, um, create a better life for his progeny. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that was always that, that lens of where, where he was from and what, um, how he looked at life always, you know, that was his. That was his, it was his lens. And that was gratefully a lens that, that I never lost sight of. So, awesome. Awesome. yeah, so we grew up in, on the Upper West Side, uh, in an apartment. Dad never, dad and mom never, um, as everyone else was heading to Westchester and Scarsdale right. and Larchmont and, uh, you know, heading to the suburbs, you know, my parents were in a rent control apartment right there on the campus. And, um, they, they paused and said, no, no, we, we kind of like covering around the neighborhood. And, and yeah. I, you know, I, I I loved that part of growing up because it was you know New York in the in the late sixties seventies eighties and it was a it was a wild and vibrant place. Awesome, uh, pretty, awesome. Pretty exciting to grow up. Yeah. Great place to be. Now the, the next question is is purely academic, and I don't mean to play on words, but you went to Columbia and went on to Stanford. So I assume you're a pretty good student going through elementary, middle school, and high school. <laughs> uh, that is a good question. Uh, <laughs> I will be honest with you. Um, I started uh, and uh, in at PS thirty six and then PS one twenty five and you know it was a period um, and I I I have a great passion for public education in this country. I will say that those were tough years and um, the environment was it was it was um, it was not an environment that was conducive to at least helping me figure out that I was. Uh, capable of being a good student and capable of sitting still in class. So, um, <laughs> I, uh, I ended up, you know, learning a little bit more about, you know, pecking order in classrooms and things like that, um, <laughs> to be very frank. And then, uh, but I ended up going, getting a break and my dad, uh, kind of put the lead out and, um, uh, I went to a school called the cathedral school, which is oh. cathedral St. John the divine. And, uh, Private, uh, uh, yeah. Catholic, uh, Catholic uh, yeah, Episcopal school, but Episcopal. Non, non-denominational. We had kids right, from over. Right. It's a really wonderful place, and mm. uh, and that was, was for high school. No, that was for grade school. Oh, grade uh, school starting in starting in like fourth grade, and yeah, and it was um, it was there where it was about a year of kind of deprogramming for me. <laughs> uh, I was about a year year into it when I, I never forgot it. A dear teacher just 
pull me out of a glass and just grab me. I don't think you can do that these days. But no, no. She, she grabbed me by the shoulders. I adored her. Grabbed me by the shoulders and just said, I know you can do this work. I mm. believe you can do this work. But unless mm. you believe you can do this work, it's not going to work. It's not going to get done. <laughs> it's not going to get done. And she just really, um, so for about a year and a half, these, you know, she and then some teachers that followed basically got me to a point where I could believe that I could put the time in and be a good student. So entered you along. Yeah. Wow. Was, uh, was, you know, a lot of people talk about their high school years. I, for me, the primary school years were the, were the place oh, really? where, where I hit the groove and uh, yeah, I was a good, solid student. Um, but more so solid student. Cause I, I realized if you put the time in more often than not, um, you know, if you apply yourself, good things can happen. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so um, that worked and then went on to high school and then, yeah, I was lucky enough to go to Columbia. Yeah, yeah awesome. So so other activities, did you involve in sports? Uh, you know, I uh, growing up in, in, in Manhattan and, and going through school, one assumes, oh, well, they probably didn't have football games. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But, yeah. but, but you know, there, <laughs> there really is quite an active environment. I've known quite a few folks that have done that. And uh, did that take up some of your attention to other things that you were involved with, public speaking perhaps, or other types of things? Yeah, no, I, well, I was, um, so when I went to the, the interesting thing about the cathedral school was, and kind of the way that it could, my parents could afford it was they were one of two schools left in New York City that actually had a full time choir. And oh, they, you, cool! You literally, if you if you audition and made it, you um, and I would say this is uh, one of my best friends who remained so all my life was doing this with me. Um, if you auditioned and made it, you were in the choir and you sang literally six days a week. You rehearse twice a day, mm-hmm. Monday through Friday. You sang even song every night at 5.15, Monday through Friday. And then you spent all Sunday at church um, singing, rehearsing, singing morning mass, going to lunch, doing your homework, singing even song, and then, then you were home. So it was pretty rigorous schedule. Uh, 20, 30 week. hours a week, it sounds like. My gosh, oh, yeah. like a probably, part-time job. Probably at least, yeah. No, yeah, and, uh, yeah. and I you know it's it's a. I think it's kind of a uh, an essential part of my story because the uh, – my friend Larry Harris, who I did this with and has remained very tight with me for a long time, it was it was a lot to it. And but what happened was for both of us, and he was a kid from the South Bronx. Um, uh, if you did this, it uh, the school paid covered half your tuition. Ah, oh very yeah. Good. So, so wow. like when, when big incentive. Yeah. yeah. So when audition time came around, my father. And mother said, you're going to audition for the choir. <laughs> we have a plan for you. Yeah, and this said, is what it includes. They said, they said, we think you can sing. And your job, <laughs> they said, we, your job is to prove to them that you can sing and you've got to get into that choir. So I luck, luckily did that. And so awesome. singing, so actually my, a lot of my, uh, so singing uh, music were a big part of my growing up. And then, um, uh, yeah, not much baseball or football in Boston, in, uh, yeah, in New York right, City, but uh, right, right, right. a lot, a lot of basketball, a lot of basketball, yeah. and yeah. Uh, and some and the field, you know, that you could find fields large enough to play softball. So yeah, no, I was I, I love sports and um, sports and music and pretty yeah. So you went on to Columbia. We talked about that. You studied political science, and yet. The arc of your career, really your entire career has been public broadcasting. We'll get to that in a moment. So did you have other ambitions at that stage? Did you think that, you know, political science might take you an international career or, you know, what were your thoughts as you, as you chose that major? That's a great question. I, um, in high school, I loved urban politics. I mean, you know, I mean, 
been in the city and, and New York city was going yeah. through, right. Uh, this was that window of time where the city was basically oh my gosh, in the early eighties. Yeah. Oh yeah. And high and crime and, starting lots of in 1976 and 77 declaring bankruptcy. And right, right. You know, if you were, if you were every, the rest of the country, I mean, famous New York post, I think, or daily news headline Ford to city drop dead. Um, <laughs> that, you know, that pretty much uh, described it. Yeah. It illustrated to everybody in New York city that, it was us against the world. I mean, that was, was it Ed Koch? Who, who would have been the mayor in your college it, days? It was, it was, I'm pretty sure when that happened, it was Abraham Bean. Abe Bean. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then, right, right. you're right, Koch, uh, Ed Koch got elected and was kind of part of that uh, window of renaissance. But it was <laughs> it was a, it was definitely a kind of us against the world thing. You talk to anybody growing up, like Spike Lee, you, talk, you know, hear yeah. him talk about growing up in Brooklyn. Um if you were there, especially, you know, New Yorkers always feel that way, but if you, you know, if you were there in that window of time, everybody had really was taken New York for God. And yeah, so, right. um, so I think, um, it, it, it may, you know, you couldn't have that and, and all the things the city was going through and not be fascinated with, you know, to, that's all you knew, right? You, you just, right. you just right. knew that this was the way the world struggled to work. So when yeah. I got, um, so in high school, I did a lot with urban politics, uh, yeah. history, and then, yeah, I got to Columbia and, uh, there was a really strong political science department and a remarkable professor, a woman named Esther Fuchs, who I took a couple classes with my first year, year and a half. And then I basically said, God, I love everything that, she, you know, mm -hmm. and I looked at the catalog and so I, <laughs> I, I joke with. Professor Fuchs now, um, having seen her a couple of years ago, I said, you know, I took every one of your classes. Um, she <laughs> she said, yeah, I remember. <laughs> yeah, she did. Um, and, um, and she actually was my thesis advisor. And, oh, uh, so yeah, that was a good, it was a good situation. And, but I think it was mostly just because it was the world, it was a window onto the world I had yeah. lit. And yeah, awesome. yeah. Now, did you work a couple of years before you went to Stanford? Yeah, no, actually the work thing. So if I'm connecting my dots, so I had yeah. the choir work, right? Course right work. Sure. And then I go to a high school in a private high school in New York as well. Cause at that point, so right. Then New York city was fiscally failing right. and I got into Stuyvesant, the wonderful public oh, high yeah. school there and um, right. was all set to go. And then they were announcing that there would be no music programs, no sports, no arts. Right. And, um, Wow. Nobody knew what that experience would be like. So my dad and mom panicked again and uh, they put enrolled me in a private school. But then I got a speech from my dad that time saying, OK, well, we can figure out a way to pay this tuition, but we can't afford, you know, anything else. So right. uh, clothes, fun, frolic, uh, that's on you. <laughs> it's and, on uh, you. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> that fall, my dad, a freshman year, my dad came Smith said he had had a a buddy who he played tennis with. And he said, um, Paul would like to see you for an interview. And I knew mm. Paul, uh, he, Paul ran an import export business. Okay. Uh, okay. So in New York city and they, they kind of operate on the margins in New York city, but basically working with, um, international tour groups that come to town and buy, oh. uh, buy materials in, the states and they get it tax free and then they basically it's duty free shop basically duty free shopping yeah, and right. um and the wild thing about this one was so i go in an interview with paul and uh ostensibly to work christmas vacation my freshman year and uh paul puts a lot of 
it was a great, I think he like put all the decorum into it as an interview, I think just to humor my father. <laughs> and, and, and he says, all right, all right, John, you've got the job. You know, here's Gabriella. You're going to report Monday. And I go, oh, okay, great, great. Good. And, uh, uh, mo three quarters of the work at that place. This is what was wonderful about it was done in Spanish actually. Wow. Uh, this is still during high school, correct? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Is, I was, yeah. I was 14 years old. Yeah. yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. yeah. Really nice. And, uh, and I worked at the electronics counter, so that was kind of fun yeah. for kids. So we sold cameras and stereos and film and calculators back then, and right. hair dryers. I mean, a little bit of everything. And uh, yeah. but we did most of the work not in English, and uh, and yeah. most of the, my fellow kind of staff members they were all uh, first generation immigrants and uh, cool. all over Latin America. And uh, so I finished this great Christmas break with a you know a check in my pocket. And my dad said, how's that feel? I said, well, <laughs> it feels it good. It feels good. He said, you know, he'd already helped me empty my, open my bank account. And so he goes, nice. are you going to deposit that? I go, yes, sir. Yes, sir. And he goes, that felt good? I said, yeah, it felt good. He said, well, why don't you talk Paul, to Paul, talk Paul, see if they've got openings on the weekends. Ah, and uh, next thing I up. knew, he'd already cooked with Paul. Of and uh, next thing I knew, I was working every weekend and every school vacation through high school and through my junior year in college. Uh, wow, fantastic! Yeah, but but you know, I I've said this to my two daughters. Um, if you, I still think for a young person, if you work retail, uh, better still to work retail with people coming in from all over the world. I think working retail, standing on your own two feet and meeting lots of different people and reacting to them and figuring out how to connect and communicate with them is the best experience. You Fabulous. Fabulous. My yeah. first job was in retail, also at 14, selling, selling yeah. kids clothes. But right? you know, you're, you're absolutely right. You, know, you, right. you learn about stalking. You learn about communications. You learn to take disappointment, right? When people don't like you, you, you deal with people that are not happy. <laughs> you got to yeah. figure out how to stay happy with them. <laughs> hey, you're, you're, you're so used to a life with your parents, your siblings, yeah. yep. and and school that is sequenced with teachers who, like you said, are they happy? Or are they not? Am I doing what I need? And it, but it's very linear. Yeah, where it, right. with, when you go into retail, you, like you just said, all of a sudden, you know, every four minutes, there's, you know, the mood, <laughs> Another reaction. every four minutes, yeah. the mood can change. And, uh, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. You, get, right. Yeah, you kind of really uh, figure out how to live outside yourself a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, fantastic. Yeah. I, I've always found, and when I meet kids who, you know, I'm doing interviews with or coaching for their careers and things they're thinking about, I'm always fascinated when I, Connect with, and I can just, I think I can pretty well tell when a, when a kid's had taken a bunch of jobs and has done some retail. Yeah. Had that background. So, so the, the time between Columbia and Stanford was then with them or, or did you do yeah, other things? No, so I applied to business school right out of, so I had done at Columbia, I basically, uh, had this great break. I got involved with the radio station, uh, okay. WKPR, right. which was, uh, predominantly a jazz station. And the good fortune of having a dad as old as my dad is, we didn't listen to, I didn't, I'm not sure I listened to any rock and roll until, <laughs> Growing up, right. until I was like 14 and could afford my own stereo. So there was one <laughs> stereo, I uh, guess like it was one TV. And so up until, honestly, till I was 14, the stereo was dad's. And, and so, you know, basically the music I listened to with my dad was his music, which was jazz. Right. Sure. And the best part about that was, and I thanked him years later, but I went into Columbia and 
the all the upperclassmen they give you this test when you go in your freshman year, and everyone is, of course, angling for a show. And what the upperclassmen love doing um, is basically giving you this test and flunking everybody. Because <laughs> you're, back then, you were ready to tell them all about the Beatles and the Rolling Stones and Led yeah, Zeppelin, yeah, right? right, right. Uh, maybe Frank Zappa, but you know, but they gave you this question, like ten questions, and. I got nine right about jazz. Wow. And wow. They, yeah, I remember they came into the, the lounge. They said, the rest of How you... How did you cheat? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So they said, look at everyone else. And they go, all right, come back in the spring. You guys all flunked. You, who are you? <laughs> did you have a brother who went here? I know this stuff. I yeah. task. And it was I like a moment of great pride because I said... Yeah. I said, no, no, I, I know those answers. I said, I've been going to... A, Listen to the music and going to the clubs with my dad since I was like 11 years old. And they go, yeah. ah, they didn't believe me. <laughs> so they literally broke out like the prior year's test. They gave me another 10 questions, and I think I got eight right. And I said, I don't think you have another any choice but to give me a show now. <laughs> so, I love it. I love yeah, so, it. So I interned with uh, a wonderful guy an, uh, who's a wonderful writer now, a guy named Ashley Kahn, who's written beautiful books on. Uh, Coltrane and Miles Davis and the history of Impulse Records and Ashley, you know, was my mentor and yeah, soon I had a show and and Love then it. and then we were the Blue Note Jazz Club opened and I got dragged down there by the station manager, you know, an upperclassman who didn't want to do the work and and he and I was down for three years every Friday night recording and broadcasting live music from the Blue Note for three years. So, yeah, so um, so uh, I got. I really, it, it, you know, the bit the I got kind of the the bug, yeah, WKTR, yeah. and so I applied to business school. Believe it or not, and the dean there at Stanford still laughs about this. Um, I applied saying, "Oh, I want to I want to do this public broadcasting thing," and um, I must have been the, the fish out of water they were looking for. Yeah, before. wow. Yeah, and I and I and they accepted me, but they said at the time. Um, they said, um, hey, you know, it's rare for a kid to come out of college, come right to school. We'd like you to get a couple of years of experience. Okay. So, Got it. Yeah. Got so it. I worked. That was their recommendation. Yeah. yeah. So here's the best part of that is um, I worked for a couple of years um, at Pete Marwick Mitchell, one of the big. Oh, eight my gosh. Yeah. yeah, sure. Yeah. Now, and all I and no disrespect, but I can tell you, I put on a suit and went into an office environment for those two years. Love the people. But I can tell you about four months into it, I said, oh, my God, I, you know, I, and I'd come out of working in a basically a creative environment in this radio station. And the juxtaposition, you know, I, I just said to myself, oh, my God, if I go to work and have to sit in a cubicle <laughs> one more time, I I'm going to kill myself. <laughs> I'm going to kill myself. My brain, I mean, it was like, oh, my God. And I, it's and such that, a different world. Oh, though. my. And, you know, and so basically yeah. what I had learned in college producing all this, you know, so I was in class and then working with these artists who we, you know, we had a great relationship with the jazz community. And, um, and I basically, the lesson I learned, and then the juxtaposed with the time Pete Marwick was, whoa, I, what I love is being around creative people. Yeah. And, um, and if, man, if I could just figure out a way to be around, you know, if I can make myself valuable and do some things around these creative people, um, gosh, you know, this is a much, this is much more fun to hang around with these guys, these sure. people. Than yeah, to awesome. uh, than to you know balance ledgers. So 
Um, yeah, so that was my lesson. And I went, so went to Stanford two years later Yeah, yeah. and, um, and at the, uh, and then summer was approaching between first and second year, everyone else running off to consulting firms and investment banks and such. Right, and I knew that was, uh, you know, there I was at my crossroads saying, well, that's kind of not me. Yeah. And, um, so I met the president of KQED in San Francisco. Oh, fantastic. And One of my favorite stations, by the way. I spent a lot of time in the Bay uh, Area. I love may, KQED. It may be. It's, uh, with all due respect to my station, it, it may be the finest public radio station in the country, mm. or at least it's yeah. one of the two finest stations. Um, <laughs> there we go. There we um, go. <laughs> but, but, but he had this remarkable notion. Uh, he was looking out at the development of public radio, and he said, we have, he, he came down to speak at Stanford. There were like only four of us who came to his talk, and I went up to him afterwards. And, uh, and he said, well, come up. And I said, I'm looking for summer work. And he said, uh, well, come up and meet with me. So um, he said, I'm look, I've got this concept and I, I just need somebody to dig into it deeply. Um, mm -hmm. You want to come here for the summer. We think that public radio is at a point where um, there's enough content that we can, the trajectory is that public radio news is going to be a thing. And um, this is the late 80s, right? We're in the 80, 80, 87, 80. Summer of 87. And he said, your job in 10 weeks is to study the environment and write a business strategy for us and tell us if you think we can switch to an all-news format, the first in the wow. country. Wow. What, and, what insight he had. Yeah, huh? no, yeah, a guy named Tony Tiano. In all Incredible. And, uh, wow. and I had wow. to turn in weekly reports, and but I got to know everybody, a lot of really remarkable people in public media and public radio. And I kept, you know, producing, you know, all you know, a format strategy, marketing plan, financials, the whole bit. And, uh, and yeah, wrote, wrote this business plan and was seven weeks in and he came to me, he says, can we have your final report next week? And I said, you know, I was getting <laughs> you gave me 10 weeks. Exactly. I was thinking, you, you, know, you, you got right to the end of it. I mean, I'm getting, <laughs> getting paid $500 a week. And I was like, yeah, I want to stretch this out a little bit more. Exactly. I looked at my head. And Tony, I, I will give you, I will give you exactly what you need. Yes, I can be done in eight weeks. But I, then I said, you know, like pause, uh, but will you pay yeah. me for week nine? And yeah. <laughs> can I hang out and do something yeah. else? Yeah. He said, oh yeah, yeah. No, he says, no problem. I just need it. And I go, well, can I ask why so soon? He goes, well, and this is what it was kind of marvelous. Kind of my break was, mm. you may recall that that was when the Iran Contra hearings were going on. Oh, of course. Yeah. And KQED yeah. had gone wall to wall with the Iran Contra hearings, like other public radio stations had. Sure. But KQED, Tony had the wisdom to say, okay, this is our chance. Cause when, you know, it's not like we're going to turn off the music one day. We've already turned off the music. Right. And because uh, a lot, most, all public radio stations, most were a mix of Covering music it. and news at that point. Right. Right. And he said, and I said, so why now? He goes, well, we don't know when the hearings are going to end. And we, we're not, we've read your stuff. We're going to do it. We're not going back. And I've called the special wow. board vote and we're going to go do it. So, so they made the decision in like mid-August that they were going to go all news. And then. Ironically, the Iran-Contra hearings didn't end until like late September, early October, mm -hmm. if I recall. But anyway, um, they went they went all news. And then the cool thing for me was I basically said to them, hey, you want some help implementing this? And uh, <laughs> so I had this beat up old Volvo and, you know, I, and I was in this Stanford class of high flyers. And but I knew I was the fish out of water. So I basically met 
second year, moved all my classes to the morning. And at like 12, I'd run to the parking lot, right. into this beat up old Volvo and tear up 280 and, and pull into the <laughs> parking lot at KQED as fast as I could. Almost like, uh, you know, I was just, I was just there halftime. Right. Uh, right and yeah. So then we, I spent that whole year implementing it and, uh, wow. yeah. And then, uh, and then when I graduated, they figured out a way to, yeah, they weren't hiring many MBAs at, in public broadcasting at that time. But, <laughs> but, but Particularly I, from Stanford, I can imagine. I, yeah. I guess they'd, I'd made myself useful enough that they could, um, that they took a flyer on me. Oh, that's fabulous. That's fabulous. And, and 35 years later, you're still in public broadcasting. An amazing career. W- when did you know you really loved it? Um, I, um, you know, I, I honestly, uh, the two ingredients for me, like I said, was being in a uh, creative environment. And the great thing about the public radio environment, public media environment is the bond between a community uh, between the station and its audience, right? So in New York, yeah. it was the jazz community, the Harlem community, and the relationship and feedback you got from an audience that wasn't getting it anywhere else and really had this bond of um, trust and, and engagement. So that's a great feeling for anybody who right. like, have any kind of customer relationship where you know it's that fulfilling. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We around creative people and then... Um, you know, secondly, I was just saying a mission, you know, mission-centered, purposeful mm. work. Um, yeah. I, you know, I knew I was, you know, it wasn't going to be about making a lot of money for me, but it, but gosh, the thought that I could come to work and be amazed by the people around me and proud mm. of what I was part of contributing to uh, and very much in community, you know, part of a com- any community I was living in and part of, uh, that was very fulfilling. Fantastic. Well, you came to WGBH uh, back in 98, but you had a short stint at, at well, not a short stint, about six years at, at PBS. Yep. T- tell us about that, you know, direction. Did, did you move back to the East Coast to join them or did you stay out West? And tell us a little bit about that interlude. So what, what went on there was um, the interesting thing that was also happening in the public broadcasting world is, you know, we're we're the last public broadcasting, public media. We're the last locally owned, operated, and governed media in America. We're really a federated right. system, right? So, yeah. so it's very bottom up, not very top down. And so, right. you're, you know, so coming out of business school, the first thing you, the tension you recognize is, um, you love the fact that you're on the ground and connected to community, but the other challenge is, if you're looking at the balance sheet and the income statement is, and the operations, you wrestle with what are what's the forecast you have for scale and mm. how where do you get scale and um what was and, and i had a window at kqed on to whether it was um the advent of fundraising databases or um uh you know the advent of the the, the new com- at that point com- what we call computer technology now we call visual <laughs> Technology. But a lot of these solutions, as accomplished as KQED was, it was really apparent to me that some of the bigger solutions in building momentum for public television, public radio, were going to be was going to be tied to the way in which stations um, scaled and did things together. And so um, PBS had done a study of the things that had to change in the way it fundraised and made its case around the country. And basically uh, identified kind of a, a body of practices that they recognized that if all stations could uh, adopt together, that we could accelerate 
um, scale uh, and and resource development and fundraising. Yeah. So I moved yeah. back to Washington to work at PBS, but basically I was ro- on the road all the time, um, mm. working with stations around the country. To all the local stations. Huh? Yeah, yeah, around these concepts. And we, huh. we, ended up, we ended up launching a company uh, and built, uh, we actually ended up launching uh, with a, we uh, collaborated with a company in Cambridge, Massachusetts that um, uh, Target Software, and we built the largest uh, in Oracle at the time, the largest, mm the largest relational database software for um, uh, the most popular among large-scale nonprofits outside of hospitals and universities. Oh, cool. Yeah, we built it for public broadcasting, and then the company in Cambridge then spun it out and used it for environmental nonprofits and yeah. health nonprofits, but, but all because, you know, there were these scaled platforms like the Oracle tool set that could allow you to do things in new ways. And it was, to me, it was a nice marriage of the things I'd yeah. kind of tackled in business yeah. school with, with trying to bring those concepts into the nonprofit sector. Yeah. What motivated your decision then to join the operating uh, folks uh, at uh, WGVH? Well, I mean, GVH is the, I, everything I seem to do at PBS, if I wanted a beta station to, you know, do it well with basically every time, including on the software project, I, you know, I basically, came to the conclusion I had to do it with GBH because they had, they just had the best, you know, just had remarkable people and they, you know, yeah. I can count on you them. Met them. You met them through the PBS yeah. experience. I so presume. all yeah. the PBS experience, I had worked with them on four or five projects and the president of GBH at the time, Henry Becton, got to know me. And um, at the time, my wife and I had two small children and I was living on a plane all the time. And we kind of decided, hey, um, uh, you know, we'd like to live in a community that, you know, where, where we actually drop our kids off at school and, you know, and stay, right. Um, right. and, right. um, and so, um, the kids were young enough that it just made sense. And, you know, to be honest, back to my point about what I loved about the community connection for public broadcasting, I just loved the notion that when Henry called me and said, because digital television was coming, he just said, you know, I'd like you to come and, uh, be our general manager, yeah. move these, this future of digital television, uh, into our plans. And, and it ended up being the right time for our family. And, um, awesome. and I love the notion that I could go back to yeah. like I was in San Francisco and like I was in New York, uh, building something in Boston yeah, and, the local yeah, and raise my, and yeah. the best part is raise my family here and have my, and know that you know I could connect my kids to a whole set like I like like I was raised in New York, but sure. connect them to a whole set of wonderful experiences in a, a, the wonderful city of Boston. So uh, it was a privilege to come to GBH. They were, you know, the largest we're the largest producer of uh, PBS children's programs and general yeah. audience programs, and uh, so you know, pretty great place to do the work. And it was the right time for me to make a move like that. What do you think's most unique about the culture of GBH? Well, the great thing about speaking of kind of scale or scope again, the nice thing about GBH, and I guess I transposed this from earlier lessons, is we're about eight hundred and fifty employees, and um, a big group. You're yeah, one of the largest local stations. I yeah, we're the, we're the largest, and yeah. and so there was an. I think what's it, we are at our heart, we're a creative and content company. Yeah. Yeah, and so um, we yes, broadcasting at that time was the you know was was the mode of distribution. But 
I think GBH thought less about the the method of transport and distribution and a lot more because it was such a creative company about the content. And so I, so the essence of GBH, um, uh, it was easier to keep that creative juice at the center of the organization and thus, you know, the mission. And then when you're trying to build, to build, you know, it's not just great producers and storytellers, but a remarkable team of people around them, whether they're in, finance or marketing or technology or fundraising, right? And so to build a, when you've got enough great creative stuff happening and you're trying to hire top people in those other, in those other functions, HR, finance, technology, right? Marketing, they love being around all that great work. So I think culture of GBH is centered in that mission, driven by extraordinary creative people. And hopefully, hopefully, it's a place where uh, people can feel really proud that that they're that they're really part of it. Yeah, great. Some of that magic. What, what do you personally look for in the people you invest in and hire at GBH? Uh, that's a that's a great question. I when um, I'd say two things in particular I'm always on looking out for is fundamentally is curiosity. Um, mm. You know, I just when I'm interviewing someone and talking with them about their interest in GBH or and what, the way they approach work hearing about problems they've solved, the way they were curious about um, problem solving, and then also just the range of their other interests outside of work. Um, if they're curious about the world, then, you know, they've, and they've got a big wide palette, then they're going to bring that into work alongside other people. And that creates a, a bigger booyah base for everybody. Yeah. Um, and the other thing, I mean, I use a phrase that with my colleagues, you know, I call it, I, I talk about headroom hires. One of the things that you're looking for is you can find someone who's just perfect for the job as you know it today. Yeah. But, you know, the world's changed so fast on us. How much headroom is there in, you know, how much upside is there in the person you're hiring? And that ties to curiosity and energy and problem solving and analytical ability and drive and teamwork. But if they're a headroom hire, you know, it works both ways. It's good for the company because you're, you know, you're getting best athlete available, right? And uh, but you're also a headroom hire is somebody who, you know, then it's a challenge for the organization because if if they're as good as you hope they are, creating a growth opportunity for them and imagining how they're going to move through the the organization, what what what's next for them, and yeah. and creating a kind of career path. There's the win, right? Because you're, yeah. you know, because when somebody's coming in it's and interviewing, yeah, it's fit, and it's also yeah. when somebody's coming in and interviewing. And you can evidence that people have grown with the company, then that's a better bet for them than thinking yeah. it's just a stop along the way. Awesome. Well, John, we're just about out of time, but we always ask our guests one last question. And that's, you know, what kind of career and life advice would you give to someone who maybe has their eyes on the corner office or, or like you, maybe knows that, you know, a, a commitment to a career of public service is something they want to do. But, you know, maybe they're not sure about that and they've experimented with a couple of different things. What would you tell that 20-year-old that's looking at their career to move forward? Well, I mean, I'd say two things. One is no decision you make is um, is irrevocable, right? So mm. so giving yourself the latitude to try things and you'll have a hypothesis about what could work for you. And um, so try it. Find out the stuff you don't like yeah, to do and, when you're and, young. And right? I, you know, I, yeah. I think we all are going to, we all learn that in life. So it's okay. Every decision, you know, you know, 
sometimes the decisions that are the tough ones that you learn the hardest lessons from are the ones that stick with you the longest. And the other thing I would say, you know, just from my own experience, maybe it's just my my luck. Um, try to listen. Try to think back whether it was in school or jobs you had or relationships you had. Just what sings to you? What mm. what 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 aspects of working are important to you? And, you know, depending on your personality and what you take from work, you know, do you love being around creative people? Are you, yeah. you know, do you want to be around, a, you know, a vibrant team culture? Do you, or do you want to be head, you know, are you deeply analytical and you want to be a problem solver? Um, or do you like working in a cubicle, which is fine. There's yeah, a lot of people yeah. that to yeah. do that too. No, yeah. I mean, they're, yeah. you know, that's the thing. <laughs> everyone's got a, a, you know, a kind of a, a fit with their, you know, passions and, the things that move them and just try to listen, you know, look back and with head and heart, try to figure out the things that, um, that drive you. And if you can find enough of that and match that to work where you can feel good about your work. Um, I, I know that's very true in the social enterprise sector. Um, so yeah. Well, John Abbott, president and CEO of GBH. Thank you so very much for sharing your journey into the corner office. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.